It can be embarrassing when someone comes up to you and says, Hi, do you remember me? You take a look, scratch your head, scan their features, and pray that something will connect. Both the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of John seek to help us be certain about the identity of Jesus, and then they challenge us to trust Him. Let's join our Truth Encounter study leader, Dave Wordson, as he asks, Do you know Jesus? How many of you have ever had the embarrassing situation that I've had that someone comes up to you, and this happens to me at the end of a meeting, sometimes it comes after someone's come to church for many years, um, sometimes it comes when I go back, like back to where I was raised in upstate New York and go back to a camp, and somebody comes up to me and they look at me and say, do you know, do you know who I am? Have you ever had someone ask you, do you know who I am? Anybody ever had that? Am I talking to anybody that knows what I'm talking about? And you, how many of you go through the routine that I go through? You, you look at them carefully, and you look at them in the eye, you look at their facial features, and you're trying not to get across the message that you don't have the foggiest idea who this is. How many of you have ever had that happen? Okay? And if you're like me, you come through with this phony blood, you know, of this, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember you, which is a lie, so pray for me in that. Some of you probably need prayer about that, too. And then how many of you have ever had the person say, um, you don't remember me, do you? And then you just, I mean, you talk about an embarrassing moment. That is really, really tough, all right? Uh, a really embarrassing time for me, not really embarrassing, it really hurt me in a way. When I was 12 years of age, I went away to Zellwood, Florida, a little bit north of Orlando, and I went to a Christian boarding school down a little bit, where, right close to where Disneyland is now, and my mom kissed me goodbye. Uh, they took me down there, but I actually came back in December. After mom hadn't seen me September, October, November, December, mom hadn't laid eyes on me. She came to the Hoboken Railway Station, that's what you might have heard of. And as she came to the station, I got off the train, saw my mom, and I walked right by her, and she didn't recognize me. Now, you talk about being crushed when your own mother doesn't recognize you. And in all fairness to her, you know, when I went away, I was in that, that you know, I turned 13. It was in that, that wondrous time where you do put on a few inches, I grow up a little bit. Obviously, I didn't get too many inches, but I put on enough inches that mom didn't recognize me. It wasn't any big deal because uh, as soon as I talked, she knew exactly who it was, and she hugged me back home and welcomed me back uh, for Christmas vacation. You say, Dave, what in the world are you talking to us about a failure to recognize somebody? Because that's what Luke and John, that's what those two books in the New Testament are about. In fact, I want you to turn there to the Gospel of Luke, and let's turn to the very last chapter, Luke chapter 24. Look at Luke chapter 24. And it's right after Jesus has risen from the dead, the apostle Peter has gone to the tomb in Luke's argument, and he is, has seen the grave clothes lying there. And then Luke leaves that scene. He has Peter leaving the tomb. He's trying to figure out what has happened, but he hasn't figured it out yet. In other words, Peter is trying to figure out what has happened. Who is this Jesus? And Luke comes back in this very last paragraph of his book, and he has two disciples. We don't even know who their names are. It's probably a husband and wife. And they're leaving Jerusalem. They saw the crucifixion take place. They saw Jesus die, and they're really discouraged. And they meet Jesus on the road, and they don't recognize him. Look at it. 
It says, now the same day, two of them, the same day, that's the day that Peter went to the tomb to see the grave clothes lying there. They're going down to a village called Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem, not too far a walk, about just a brief evening's walk for these ancient, strong walkers. They were talking to each other about everything that happened. So they're going over the crucifixion and the trial of Jesus and all that happened in Jesus' final days there on earth and how he was crucified. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and he walked along with with them. So the resurrected Christ comes and walks with them. And I believe that when we go on to the book of Acts, uh, as we study Luke's second part of his telling of the good news and what continues to happen, I think Luke would want you to know that Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, has gone to heaven and he sent his spirit, and this morning he's walking in this room. He's trying to come alongside of you. And he's going to do it a lot like he did with his two disciples on the Emmaus Road. Because Jesus isn't going to blast into your life and give you a blinding light and, or he's not going to knock you to the ground. He doesn't usually do that like he did with the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. Dr. Luke wants us to realize that Jesus comes and he walks alongside people in life. In fact, the Gospel of John, which is another book we're going to say this morning, will say something like this. Jesus is the light that lighteth every man and every woman that comes into the world. So as you're sitting there... As we ask the question, who in the world is Jesus? I want you to know that it's not just finding out information about him. It's not just hearing a powerful sermon about him. But what I want you to know that deep inside of your heart, Jesus is walking beside you. And if you look back over your life, those of you that are in this room, and that's something I'm going to challenge you to do this morning, you can look back over your life. Every one of you that have met Jesus can look back over your life, and you can see how Jesus was walking close to you, and how he caused things to happen, and then he caused you to understand things until you came to that moment when you opened your life to Jesus and you recognized him. And that's what Dr. Luke wants you to get a hold of, and it's what I want you to get a hold of this morning. In fact, Jesus, right here this morning, like with the, um, the disciples on the Emmaus Road, is he walks alongside of us. And the possibility is that you don't recognize him. In fact, throughout both Luke and John, the big issue through all the books, those two books, is people don't recognize him. And we'll be talking more about that in just a minute. A lot of your friends don't recognize, recognize him. And I want to talk to you this morning about if you don't recognize him, some of the decisions that you need to think about concerning him. I want you to know, like as I read this this account of these two disciples on the Emmaus Road, if you don't know Jesus at all, I want you to understand what you have in your hand. This is an ancient parchment scroll. It's about 35 feet long. The reason that Luke and Acts were separated is because... Luke is exactly the 35 feet, 32 feet or so that you could have of a papyrus scroll. And so Luke ran out of paper and then had to have volume two. Otherwise, the two books would be together. You say, Dave, why are you telling this? Because what I'm going to teach you this morning in Dr. Luke's account goes back to the early 60s. Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. I know that Luke and Acts was written before the destruction of Jerusalem, before Paul was killed about 64, 65 AD. So you've got an ancient account here. And that's one of the ways I want you to read it. This is a historical account that's going to talk to you about and challenge you to think about who in the world is this Jesus. 
As I talked to you this morning about the Gospel of John, where I can only just whet your appetite about what John has to say, John is written later, probably in the late 80s, maybe early 90s, about the time that he's writing the 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and Revelation. It's the latest book of the Gospels. And Revelation's the last book that's written in the New Testament. So those books are more, John's books are going to be more reflective, give you John looking back at this and giving you this incredible big picture. But I want you to know as you open up these books, and this morning all I can do is to try to just make you really hungry to do this for yourself. I want you to know that both Luke and John, as you open up these books, are going to challenge you. Who do you think Jesus is? Have you recognized him? You say, Dave, where do you get that from? Luke ends his gospel with two disciples that don't recognize him, and the story's going to conclude with them having their eyes opened in the communion time as they break bread with Jesus. In the parable story, how many of you have ever been in a funeral where you heard the words, in my father's house there are many mansions? If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. How many of you have ever heard those words? How many of you have ever heard, I am the way, the truth, and the life? No one come to the Father but by me. How many of you ever heard those words? Okay. Where is that? That is in Jesus' last discourse with the disciples just before Judas betrayed him, just before they left the upper room from having the Last Supper. And you might not realize it, but Philip, one of Jesus' disciples, who has walked with him for three years, right in the middle of that section, I am the way, the truth, and life. No make him to the Father but by me. Philip says, Jesus, show us the Father. Show us the Father. And we will believe. Then we'll know that we you know. Well, that's the answer. We want to know, how do you get to God? How do you get to God the Father? And Jesus says, Philip, have I been with you three years? Have I been so long time with you and you don't know who I am? And then he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In other words, John's gospel started out by saying, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is saying, I'm one. The Word is equal to God. What I want to challenge you to do is begin to read your Bible. I was raised reading the Bible. Some of you have an advantage on me in some ways because you haven't read very much of it at all. And so it's almost like it's brand new. And rather than that being a disadvantage, and for some of you that'll be a big advantage because you don't bring all this stuff with it. And you can get back to what it was like to read these stories for the first time. As you go out this week and talk to your friends, one of the things that I'd like you to do is, in other weeks, I've asked you to ask your friends, you know, what do you think of when you think of born again? What's the first thing you think of? Here's another question for you. You know, you're just eating lunch with an unbelieving friend, and you've talked about the Dallas Cowboys this afternoon, or you talked about UT, you know, going to beat Oklahoma in a few weeks, and all those marvelous things, okay? Right in the middle of that, you say, you know, I've been thinking about something, you know, I hear Jesus on the news a lot. I hear about discussions about religious things. A question that's really been on my heart is, who in the world is Jesus? Who do you think Jesus is? And then get your friend just to share with you who is Jesus. And listen. You say, Dave, where do you get that from? In the Gospels of Luke and in the Gospels of John, if you'll just read these books with an open heart, Jesus doesn't take people in a meeting like this Have a guy get up and harangue him, you know, yell and scream about Jesus, and at the end of it saying, you're going to bow or burn, come forward right now. There's nothing. Now, God has used that through the centuries. But that's really not what happens in the Gospels. What Jesus does is a lot more powerful. 
He goes out to restaurants with people, the equivalent of that in the ancient world. He goes out and uh, goes to weddings. How many of you ever gone to a wedding? You've done that? Um, he goes to dinner parties with people. He goes to, how many of you have gone to parties this past week? How many of you went to homecoming parties? Some of you did that. Jesus did all that. In other words, as you read these gospels, one of the things I want to challenge you to do is to look at all the things that Jesus did. And in these books, Luke and John let you see the way Jesus allows people to interact with him, and then they come up with different conclusions about who he is. And what you're going to find is that the same conclusions are made about Jesus with your friends today. Let's talk about some of it. It's always fun to start out with a negative. You know, you all know, well, Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. He's God. He's God's Son. Last week I talked about he's the Son of God. He's the Son of Man. I talked about he's the Messiah of Israel. Talked about all those incredible positive ways that we can identify Jesus. Let's look at some of the misidentifications of Jesus. Uh, Turn to Luke chapter 4. Let's go to Jesus' hometown. Just to give you an idea, all I can do this morning is to illustrate for you what you can do in your own study and thinking about what Jesus is doing. In Luke chapter 4, as we look at verse 22, Jesus is back in his hometown. He's back in Nazareth. And Luke is beginning, if you look at verse 14, It says that Jesus returned to Galilee, which is the northern part of Israel today, and the power of the Spirit, news about him spread to the whole countryside. And he was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. So up there in the northern part of Israel, one of the things that both Luke and John want to understand is Jesus is going through the countryside, and he's giving the measure of the kingdom. A lot of people are responding to him. It's like like a, a, a rock star that people are responding to him, and big crowds are coming. Now, Luke wants to give you a little insight into what happened when Jesus went into a town. So he takes them back to his hometown. For some of you, were, how many of you were born and raised in Midlothian? Raise your hand. How many of you were born and raised in Duncanville? Raise your hand. A bunch of you were born and raised. How many of you were born in Dallas? Raise your hand, okay? Jesus is, he wasn't born in Nazareth, but he was raised in Nazareth. Like, I wasn't born in Texas, but I got here as soon as I could. And that's what Je- well, the way Nazareth was. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but because it was dangerous down there in the south, he was raised up in Nazareth. Look what happened. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. On the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue. This is verse 16. That was his custom. So one of the things you learn about Jesus, he was a good Jewish boy. When it was time on the Sabbath to go to the synagogue, Jesus did it. So he's done in the Sabbath. It's probably about 6 o'clock Friday afternoon, probably 7 o'clock by this time. And Jesus goes up to the synagogue. What happened in a first century synagogue? In a first century synagogue, they would meet and they would have one of the men from the congregation. They would have one of the men from the congregation read something from the Old Testament. So it was a very participative service. So that's something that we can feel free to do in our church, to have you share. And that's why we want to have small groups. And we want, even on Sunday morning, if you have an opportunity to share, that we're like this give and take. Jesus was a man that had been raised in that town. He's beginning to develop a name for himself. So he stands up in the synagogue, and he reads from Isaiah chapter 61, which reads like this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. So who does Isaiah say the Messiah is going to care about? How many of you would consider yourself poor? You're going to be too embarrassed to say that. How many of you have ever felt like you just didn't have any gas at all? You were poor in spirit. Anybody ever been like that? How many of you have ever felt you just can't cut it? You just can't make it? Anybody ever felt like that? 
How many of you have ever been in a time in your life where you couldn't, you didn't have all the bills paid? Okay. I want you to know if you're poor, from as you ask yourself who Jesus is, if you're poor, there's a good chance that you'll figure out who Jesus is. If you're rich, the way things work, there's a good chance you might figure out who Jesus is, but there's a really good chance you won't. And you all need to be aware of that because the, the biblical Jesus loves Nicodemus and he's rich and he does come to Jesus, but most, most of Nicodemus' cohorts in the Sanhedrin don't come to Jesus at all. So you need to realize, if you ask, like, who in the world are we worshiping today? I want you to know, Jesus really cares about the poor. That's why we send our kids to go to the church underneath 35. Because we want our church family to grow is Jesus doesn't work among suburban Texas. But you really will probably find Jesus underneath 35 with someone that doesn't have anything. You'll find Jesus. Like, I want to challenge you. If you're old enough, and those of you that are over 18 can do it, Bill Curry goes to the Venus prison. Why do we go to visit Venus prison? Because a lot of those guys are what the Gospel of Luke would consider poor. They're the outcasts of society. When they get out, they're going to be rejected. And so we want to be a church family that if they stay in this area when they get out, they're going to be welcome here, right? Why are we going to do that? Because we feel badly and we feel guilty ourselves about the blessings that we've received? No! the last thing those people need. We're going to accept them because Jesus does. He says, I've come to preach good news to those that are poor, those that are disenfranchised, those that are, don't feel that they're part of the establishment, all that idea. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners, what I just was talking about, and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Then he rolled up the scroll, just like I told you Luke was a scroll. He's rolling up the Isaiah scroll. And he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. I want to go back to that. Maybe, I used to do that. I used to sit in a stool, and that we should do some of that again. That's what they did in the synagogue. They would sit down, and then they would do what I'm doing now, which is why we're doing it. We read the Bible, and then we have someone exp- explain what it means. Jesus says the eyes of everyone. It says the eyes of everyone are on Jesus in the synagogue. And he began by saying, today, this scripture is fulfilling your hearing. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the, 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 the way that people would have responded? Their hometown boy says, Isaiah is being fulfilled right now. I'm the Messiah that's going to declare this, this year of Jubilee, which in old Israel, there were, every seven years they made you cancel all the debt, and they made, they made you take a break every seven years, and then every 50, on the 50th year, they made you cancel all the debt, all the property had to go back. And Isaiah used that as an image that when the Messiah come, he'll declare a universal year of jubilee, and it will ultimately be even freedom from our debt of sin. And Jesus says, I've done it. I'm the man. How do they respond? Jesus goes on to tell them something incredible. He tells them a couple of stories from the Old Testament as he is talking about this passage because the people respond to them the way that uh, I often get when I go back to my hometown. When I go back to my hometown and I preach like I'm preaching to you now, they usually say, oh, that sweet little Dave Wurtson, he's Jack Wurtson's son. And my tendency is to respond, well, that's really nice. I really like that. That's a cool thing. Jesus doesn't do that. The whole audience is saying, this is a nice little religious service. This is a nice, isn't this wondrous? Our hometown boy is making a name for himself. And look how Jesus responds. And this is where I want you to ask yourself, who is this man? Look at how Jesus teaches. 
Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine through the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but he was sent to a Gentile woman of Seraphith in the region of Sidon, which was dirty territory for the ancient Israelites. And that's the widow that had her needs met. And then he tells a story about Elisha who healed the, the Syrian army general Naaman. How did the audience respond to that? Look at the text. It says here the way they responded to that is they took Jesus out, they took him to a mountain, and they tried to kill him. Now, I want you to feel this. In the first century, how many of you are a little bit afraid of the world that we live in? Anybody been afraid this week and say, good night? The Pope Ratzinger, he was really just a German professor the way that he talked in the last couple of days. How many of you have heard about that? I've been, I've been reading Ratzinger since I was a young theological student. He's a brilliant guy. He knows history really well. And so he was just giving some of the history of Christian violence and Islamic violence. And he shared something that a pope shared about a thousand years after Jesus was here about how Muhammad proclaimed Islam sometimes with a sword. And anyone that knows anything about history is, has Christianity tried to push Christianity with a sword? Yes. And Ratzinger was saying, that's wrong to do that. We shouldn't do that. He also said Islam does that. And by the way, Islam's doing that right now. By the way, some Christians are doing that right now. So what I want you to understand, how many of you get uptight about that? Man, I can't believe we live in a world people get their head cut off. And I want you to relax a little bit because this is the first century. Jesus in his hometown. And when they had their church service, I've had some really bad meetings but I've never had a meeting. I've had some meetings where I walked out and nobody said a word to me. I've had some meetings where when I left the meeting, Mary said, well, we'll never be back there again. <laughs> but I've never had a meeting where the crowd rose up, grabbed a hold of me, and took me out and tried to kill me. Jesus wants you to understand, why is Luke telling you this story? And I can use this to illustrate what Luke does all the way through the book. All the way through the book, Luke is challenging you. The hometown crowd says Jesus is just a great teacher. Jesus won't let them accept that. Jesus is saying, I'm the great Messiah, and I'm going to be the one that brings forgiveness, not just for Jewish people, and you're going to have to get out of your racial uh, pride, and you're going to have to open your heart because my gospel is going to be for the world. That's who the real Jesus is, and those were fighting words, and they're still fighting words today. So one of the false conclusions I want you to be alert for as you go through the book, some of the people feel this is just a hometown boy, just a good teacher. What does Jesus say? He says, no. He says, I'm the Messiah that fulfilled uh, Isaiah's prophecy. Let me give you just one other illustration of a false conception about Jesus. What did the religious leaders say about Jesus? Well, let me just summarize a little bit. At the end of the book, and we're right in the middle of Luke, Luke chapter 11, verse 15. Jesus, all the way through the book, one of the things you're gonna, that you'll really be hit with if you've read the Gospels this week. How many of you have found that people that can't hear, for example, will come to Jesus and Jesus will realize that the evil one, Satan, it's not just a genetic thing, it's not just because of a physical thing, but Satan is attacking their physical body and causing them not to hear. You see, and I want you to understand that the Jesus that we follow does believe that there's a real evil one, like I talked to you about last week. 
And Jesus will say, get out of him, come out of him. And Jesus will cast evil spirits. And they'll even holler out, you're the Holy One. What are you doing with us? Jesus had tremendous power. Now, the religious leaders in the book, and you need to think hard about this, the religious leaders don't say, this is a bunch of baloney. There isn't Satan. There isn't an evil one. Because they all accept that. Now, the modern world says, well, that's very naive. And one of the things I want you to think about, I think I'm naive. Because I live in a world where murder's increasing, where I see little kids that are beat up by their parents. I see mothers that explode and, and, and hurt their kids. One thing I know after being in Midlothian for 33, it looks like a really great little town. Somebody said to me, he said, Dave, you know, if you ever have a hard time in your old age and you're really are hurting financially, just write a book about all your experiences. You'll never be able to pastor us anymore, but you'll probably be able to make, make enough money. And that's the truth. And being here for 33 years, and one of the things that I guarantee, because I think it's absolutely a necessity of about a spiritual leader, is they have to keep confidences. But I want you to know that the demonic activity right here in destroying families, right here in destroying people's health, is very real. And we need a Savior that can cast Satan out. And it's not like a spooky thing you see on TV. It's people that really pray and people that really follow Jesus and people that really know him. What the religious leaders concluded about him is he is able to cast out demons because he's the prince of demons. How many think that's a pretty lousy conclusion of Jesus? So some of you get discouraged. I want you to realize that in both Luke and John, Jesus' religious leaders conclude that he's demonic. So the choice is he's the son of God or he's demonic. Do you realize that Jesus got crucified? You know why Jesus got crucified? Jesus got crucified because the Jewish leaders concluded that he was an insurrectionist. He was a rebel against Rome. And if they didn't kill him, that they'd lose their whole nation. You say, Dave, where did he get that from? In the trial of Jesus in both John and Luke, Caiaphas, the high priest, is interrogating Jesus. And in these trials, if you'll read it carefully, it's not Jesus that's really on trial. It's the Jewish religious hierarchy and it's Pilate himself that's really on trial. But they think they're trying Jesus. The high priest says, are you the Messiah? And Jesus responds, I am, which is powerful, loaded statement. Through the Gospel of John, whenever Jesus says, I am, it's saying, I'm Yahweh, the Old Testament. So you need to think about that. The high priest, you know, they have, they have witnesses that say, this man said that in three days, that he would destroy this temple in three days, build it again. So they have an uproar in the Sanhedrin. This man is going to tear down the temple. Jesus did predict that the temple would be destroyed. You know what they concluded about him? He is anti-religious faith. It would be like speaking to a bunch of Islamic people and saying you're going to tear down the mosque of Mecca. People are going to roll for that. And I want you to understand, that's the way Jesus talked. When they come before Pilate, Pilate says, they've accused you of being anti-Caesar, of being another king. He says, are you a king? And Jesus says, yes, I am a king. And then Pilate says, don't you know who you're talking about? 
I'm the one that has authority. I could kill you or I can let you go. Don't you cringe beneath my authority? And Jesus says, no, there's no authority to give you except what I have. Because my father is the one that gave the authority. That's the way Jesus talked. And Pilate knows deep in his soul the way Luke and John tell us the trial that Jesus really isn't a king that's going to physically attack Caesar because he knows and he has the discernment to know that Jesus is really talking about a kingdom that's not of this world. But the reason Pilate crucified Jesus is the charge that was brought against him. People I concluded, he's a political rabble-rouser. You say, Dave, that never happens today. I get an email as I close today. I get an email this week. Rosie O'Donnell on The View says radical Christians, right-wing Christians, are just like fundamentalistic Islamic people. How do you feel about that? So what we do in our movement is we send out a petition throughout our movement. We all need to write to the networks, and we need to demand that Rosie O'Donnell be rebuked and probably thrown off the air. What are we doing? We're going to win here! Don't you know we're 48% strong? I want to ask you, how did Jesus respond? Did Jesus say to Pilate, Pilate, I'm Jesus. I have my rights here. In fact, I'm the Son of God. You're out of here. And Pilate disappears in a puff of smoke. Brothers and sisters, that's the Savior that I have. I really want you to know I have a Savior that has that kind of power, but that's not what he did. I want you to read the Gospels. Because one of the things that's happening throughout the world is instead of following our Savior, instead of following our Savior and watching what he did, I wrote that network a letter saying, Rosie O'Donnell thinks that we're right-wing political insurrectionists that want everyone to be killed, just like the Islamic people that are cutting their head off. He said, I just want you to know that I'm a father of Jesus. And I follow a Savior that hung on a cross when the people put him there and said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And I said, I want you to know the network that I'm praying that you and Rosie and everyone else will somehow, some way, meet a Savior that hung on the cross so they could be forgiven. And that's what I want you to do with your unbelieving friends. Because, brethren and sisters, what the Gospels are showing us now is that Jesus, during this time of grace, is coming to every one of you individually. He wants to walk into your life. And he's going to let you, as you go through these Gospels, he'll let you see these false conclusions about Jesus. He's just a prophet. He's just a great teacher. He is on the extreme negative value. He's an insurrectionist. He is is anti-Jewish faith and all that. On the other side of the ledger, it'll show you Nicodemus, one of the Sanhedrin, realizes that he's the curse one on the tree that was lifted up for him. And by the end of the book, Nicodemus figures it out, and he comes to Jesus and becomes one of his early disciples. He'll let the apostle Peter, in both Luke and John, in fact, Peter, how many of you have ever read the passages? Upon this rock I will build this, my church. And If you're from a Roman Catholic background, it's a big, major verse for you. What Luke and John want you to realize about this is the Lord has brought Peter through. And he brings Peter, like in the Gospel of John, for example, Jesus says to the crowd, unless you can internalize me, unless you let me inside your life, you eat my flesh and drink my blood, unless you take me inside and really depend upon me, 
you're not going to have eternal life. And everyone leaves. And Jesus is left there with Peter and the twelve. And Jesus looked at them, and I want you to see how different. You see, I'm, as a pastor teacher, my attitude is I want you all to come. I want to say anything to get you to come. And I want you to see how different Jesus is. Jesus doesn't deal with you like that. It'll make me con you if I do that. People that are really real don't deal with you like that. And Jesus says to the disciples, are you going to leave now too? And Peter says, no, I'm not. In essence, like Jesus says, why not? Peter says, where else can I go? Because you have the words of eternal life. Have you recognized who Jesus is and trusted in his death to pay the penalty for your sin and his resurrection, guaranteeing that he can give you life? If you are not sure you have made this decision, why not pray right now? Dear Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John identified you as the Son of God, the Messiah who would die so that I could be forgiven. I accept your gift of forgiveness based upon your death in my place. The Gospels testify to the historical reality that you rose again from the dead. I believe their testimony and place all my hope for resurrection and eternal life and forgiveness completely in your hands. Son of God, I receive you into my life. Amen.